0: Hello and welcome to resident advisors exchange our series of conversations with the artists labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape i'm jordan rothline and i'm the tech editor at resident advisor this week's exchange comes from berlin atonal festival from earlier this year a few days after the experimental music showcase wrapped up i sat down with alessandra cortini in a side room at the cavernous berlin Kraftwerk, the festival's home base Cortini, a sometime member of Nine Inch Nails, and one of the most ravenous synth heads in the business, played extensively at this year's Atonal. We spoke about gear, particularly his Buchla modular synth, as well as his creative impulse and the musical journey that shaped his work. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net, and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with Alessandro Cortini, up next. Back here at uh, the site of Berlin Atonal this year, you had quite a busy festival. I don't know that anybody else played more than you did.
1: Uh, it's been, it's been crazy good. I mean, <laughs> I did not know. I mean, I knew what I was going to do, but I did not know how long, you know, what what sort of physical taxing situation that would be. Especially because <laughs> you know I'm a 10 p.m. go to bed person. <laughs> So to have to play a show at 10 p.m. would be fine if it wasn't for the, the fact that there's another one at 4 a.m. But no, overall, it was an incredible experience. I mean, the organization was incredible. Lawrence, the organizer, made sure that everything was just right. Everybody working at the festival made, you know, did an incredible job. The artists, I mean, I personally, as a music fan and musician, could have been happier than, than I was being with these people, sharing the stage and just being able to see them all in one place. Perfect length. You know, because it was you know what five days I think, and uh, the last day was a little bit more chill, and everybody was just you know just lounging around as opposed to just going from one stage to another. Yeah. The setup
0: here really lends itself to that. You can be up front and get the really full-on experience, or you can kind of drift into the back of the room a bit and just lie down, trip yeah. out.
1: There were a few times where I just stepped back and sat down, you know, checked my email, you know, <laughs> looking for a spot with a little bit of signal <laughs> and just relaxed and enjoyed the show. You know, a lot of the times you didn't have to be that's the other thing with a lot of this music. It's not um I mean, yes, there are visuals for a lot of, of the sets, but at the same time, it's music especially in this environment, can be experienced by just sitting down and and relaxing, you know. And that's kinda like what we did with the Lawrence English collaboration where we actually asked people to sit down and just make themselves comfortable. To yeah, listen,
0: you know? I, I was going to mention that actually uh, at the beginning of that set, which was called Immediate Horizon, you actually put something up on the big screen. It was the only projection uh, during that set, I yeah. think, that just said um, we recommend that you sit or even lie down yeah, and exactly. just experience the music.
1: It was fairly clear from the get-go, uh, I'd say. It was an unspoken agreement on what we would be doing. and Then obviously when me and Lawrence started talking more in depth about what the set was going to be, and we started exchanging ideas. It got clearer and clearer. That it was going to be more of a receptive situation from a listening point of view, where where you can just experience it both sonically and from a sensation point of view, just like body, you know, because there's a lot of low frequencies and whatnot. And you can there are parts of the set where you get literally engulfed by. by by sound, especially given the PA, you know, the the sound system that we had a chance to play through here, and the subs particularly. So it made total sense that as opposed to standing up and looking at two people, you know, doing their thing with instruments, uh, which I think it has its level of physicality, but it's not really something that I think can keep you interested for more than a few minutes. I I mean, obviously I'm talking for myself, but in general, you know, we felt that from a, from the point of view of being able to experience uh, the set to to its best, it would have been better just to suggest. Obviously, it was a suggestion, but to our surprise, pretty much all the people. Yeah, I stood. I the was. The, um, you know, there were a few standing up, which is totally fine. But most people just sat, sat down right away. So
0: I was uh, sort of near the front mm-hmm. and a little off to the side for most of for most of the set. And I I stood up at one point and looked back, and it was just like the entire room. And this is yeah. a huge space. Was just all people. Sitting down, lying yeah. down. I tried to leave a little bit early just to catch the last train, and I couldn't get back because I'm so, I'm I was going to be tripping over people just lying lying on the ground.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, uh, we didn't. I didn't think you know that kind of set the mood for me for the rest of the the festival. Just because I don't want to say I'm not used to that sort of willingness to follow. I don't even want to know if it's followed directions, but it just looked like everybody was open to anything at the festival you know as listeners and and that really impressed me because you know in in the US I think in general and I mean I'm not by all means I'm not an expert but what I get is even in a situation similar to this if it would happen there'd be more pockets of people to come to see a specific thing than leave you know here it just felt like people would buy their pass or their ticket and they just came here to be here and I'm sure some of them just were outside most of the time just hanging out or but it just feels like a place to be for five days you know to be in for five days a community and whatnot and And I've never been a guy for festivals, just mostly, you know, when I think festival, I think something like Coachella or like, you know, incredibly depressing places like that where, you know, people just go to be seen and the bands are just, you know, bummer most of the time. But uh, I'm not for big spaces with a lot of people, generally speaking, but this was incredible, you know.
0: Tell me about the other sets that you played. You played two more at the festival, yes. and one of them was a, a premiere of, yes. a, of a piece.
1: it was. Um, uh, they were both kind of a premieres in, in a way, because uh, the "Sono Risveglio" A V set was basically um, the final, basically version of uh, uh, the live presentation of my two last last two solo records that I released on uh, on um, Hospital Productions, which are "Sono" and "Risveglio," and, and "Sono" has been toured for a year now. But um, I added, you know, there is video tracks, and Shankar is Patrick, who did all the previous visuals, uh, reworked the set in order to add new visuals for the new tracks, and also to make them work with the old ones, obviously. So it's been kind of repackaged and, re, uh, and rearranged as a final version of the two records presented live, um, both from, an, from a, my side of things, so from the audio side of things, and from the uh, visual side of things. The other set is for a project, which I almost feel funny calling project because there was not really just like anything else really. There's not really thought too much thought went behind it when I created. It. It's just it feels great and then evolves from five minutes to maybe something longer and I feel like maybe it's worth recording. <laughs> I ended up calling it Scarn and, and it's basically a twelve that came out on Avian Records here in in uh, Berlin through a Guy from Shift, Shifted and uh, it's basically a, a techno project, I guess for lack of a better term. Um, very minimal based on uh, very simple tube instruments, a tube drum machine and a tube synthesizer by a company called Metasonics. So it's a very weird way to, I, I feel, to make techno. Uh, but it's a machine that lends itself to very unique sounds and I think the fact that it's tube based makes it sound, the evolution of a sound, which is usually what I tend to obsess over, it's much richer and, and uh, peculiar than it would be with a normal, you know, Filter like oscillator filter amplifier sort of situation. And that, you know, was a 12-inch a that somehow evolved in booking a few shows, and that was probably the toughest thing to do for me.
0: Am I right that that was sort of your first foray into sort of something resembling straightforward techno?
1: Yeah, I can't remember. I, had an, I have another re- a few other releases under another name, uh, Slumberman, which um, one came out on uh, Panzerkraus, mm-hmm. which is Bunker in, in The Hague, and uh, another one through CLR as a remix of Drum Cell under Slumberman. And, and it's a little bit more accessible, that stuff, I would think, although it's still kind of dirty, you know, sound-wise. Uh, Skarn was more like a, an experiment uh, that somehow made sense and evolved. But yeah, it's, it's my first, this was the first, I think, I guess, first techno set that I've ever done. It was a bittersweet thing for me because I, I, I really didn't really get into it. I, I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> This particular set. In general, I think yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not. Obviously, I'll do it again. But um, maybe I overthought it. You know, I was thinking too much about it. And, and there's always a, the, the fact. Well, I'm not really playing a set. It's not really a set because I mean, uh, you know, people are dancing. I'm not playing a lot Usually, when people come see a set of what I do, is just people seeing, watching you play. So I think it's a world I'm still get, world I'm getting used to, but. I doubt it's something I'll get into as far as doing it regularly, simply because I can never cope with the schedule, the time schedule of getting into a club at 5 a.m. and play. You know.
0: I know that I read that maybe the thing that you had the hardest time with during the period when you were with uh, the first period when you were with Nine Inch Nails was just the touring schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, you loved working in the studio. You were not so hot on being on tour. Yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, well, the studio in general. I mean, if you if, if we even take it from a simple studio live, I would say the studio part. You kind of get to do something new every day, and it's very creative and, and you know, and non-repetitive generally speaking. And and live, you basically live. I've always approached it as you know, kind of being checked in school, and they kind of want to want you know, the crowd kind of wants to see you being able to do what you did in the record in a more interesting way, generally speaking. And that's always been kind of a little bit of a pain, and, and not a pain, not ideal, you know. But when you think about nine-inch nails, was ideal in, as a situation because. I was always given my space to be myself, you know, in function of the band, obviously. But you know, if you look at or early photos of me live, it's just a tiny corner of, with a few pieces of gear, and then basically a, a room, that, you know, a corner that resembles this room, you know, with like you could barely see me, which was totally fine with me, you know, I like having my space, and and so it, it it was the ideal situation to play live. But in general, I've always had more of an issue with playing shows simply because especially when it's song-based stuff or band-based, when there's a structure that is verse-chorus and people expect that to happen, you kind of have to do that. There's not really a freedom, and I'm not talking about jamming or whatnot, but uh, if there's one thing that makes making music interesting, to me is just the fact that you don't know what's gonna come next, you know, and the compositional process. And for the instrumental stuff that I've been playing, um, I guess to a certain extent also the techno stuff, it, it lends itself to that kind of like borderline making music in real time sort of situation. Because you're not always stuck to a specific format. I mean, obviously you have a kick that is, you know, that's sort of like an anchor. But everything else is really up to you and up to the room and how, how people react to it. And uh, that is sometimes the learning. But I'm not, a, you know, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with taking my time to do it. Also, I'm not, uh, I'm not in a rush really. <laughs> well,
0: I'm really curious to hear a bit more about your musical background. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it fair to say that you're a guitarist yeah.
1: by trade? Well. Um... I haven't played guitar in a long time. But uh, yes, I mean, I was born as a guitar player. Um, my family was, it was a musical family. My my dad played guitar, my mom listened to a lot of music, mostly Beatles, you know, very melodic stuff. But uh, I grew up in a very musical family, a lot of music in, with friends and, and uh, all around me, mostly pop, you know, uh, um, growing up, but then moving on to more, you know, 80s in Italy, so a lot of electronic pop. Duran uh, Duran was my first, you know, approach, uh, first uh, experience with, like, synths, if you want. And uh, and then more rock, I think, you know, um, hard rock. I mean, Guns N' Roses was a big change. You know, when I was 13, 14, it was revolutionary. I mean, as it was for a lot of people my age back then. And guitar took over, yeah. Guitar became my main thing, and um, that's the reason it brought me to the United States, uh, was to study guitar, and then only to realize after I was done with one year of school that... I would still go home and write music, generally speaking, as songs or compositions, where sometimes there wasn't even any guitar, really. It was mostly electronic-based. And that really helped to sort of wake me up in a way and go, well, it doesn't mean just because you've used the guitar as your main instrument for so long that that has to be the only instrument you're gonna use forever. And that kind of made me make the move consciously into just music, you know, and uh, synthesizers mostly as a, as a tool of expression and production. Uh, first with computers and then slowly to hardware, simply because I found it easier to uh, to be happy sonically if I would be able to do stuff with my hands as opposed to, you know, with a computer. And I think once I got into the modular world, into modular synthesizers, more specifically the Buchla, I got more into the experimental side of things and uh, stuff that was a little less musical, if you want, or more about sound than, than a specific song structure or, or melodic structure. Although, that being such an important part of my upbringing, it's always been, you know, part of the music that I make to a certain extent. It's hard to get rid of melody, you know, once it's there. How did you
0: sort of first come into contact with synthesizers? I mean, you said you were listening to Duran Duran and groups yeah, like this, but, but first... when did you actually play one?
1: Well, I remember the first synth that I had was, I think, a Casio PT 10 or something like that. I remember buying it and I remember actually playing the demo a lot, like I had a built-in demo song. (laughs) I was like, wow, it kind of does it on its own. That was like the first realization that things were about to change. But no, I think uh, the first real experience with synthesizers, I think, was um, a musician friend of mine called Franco Nadei in Italy for whom I did some guitar work when I was more into guitar. And uh, I kind of brought the heavy guitar and and he had this world of synthesizers. He was a big Depeche Mode fan and uh, sampling and synthesis. And that's where I sort of got my first, you know, full-on immersion into that world. He had a lot of Waldorf stuff and uh, Korg and a Kurzweil 2000. And, and I remember just really, really getting into it, you know, like really, really embracing the ability of coming up with new sounds without having, you know, I, I reached a point with the guitar where in order to find, new, I, I want a new sounds, but in order to find a new sound with a guitar, uh, it became much harder than just, you know, turning into a synthesizer that had no idea how it worked and all of a sudden a new spark of creativity comes out just because of that sort of factor of not knowing what you're doing, not being scared of fiddling around and seeing what comes out. So this must have been, I would say, probably mid-90s, I think. I can't, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I would think that would be the period. And, uh, and from there on, you know, I got my first Mac and, um, and then started getting software, you know. And when, I came, when I went to the US, I bought my first laptop and got all my software on it and I started making, I was super stoked about being able to make music with software wherever I was until one day I played um, back home a real mini which I already had a software and I thought probably wouldn't need to have the hardware. And then I realized that not, you know, three hours that passed with me on headphones and a pencil stuck under the, you know, the key, to keep the sound going, just playing knobs, you know. And then I realized, oh, why, why would I do this on a machine, physical instrument, as opposed to doing it on the computer? And I realized how much I react to tactile feedback and actually working with an instrument with my hands, as opposed to with the same tools that you would in an office, you know, like a trackpad or a mouse. You know.
0: Well, it, it makes sense that that's how it would go. The guitar is an instrument that's really defined by gestures mm-hmm. and by, by the physicality of how you play it. Yeah. Obviously, with a synthesizer, it's quite different gestures, but I would imagine that you would really be attracted to something that, that you can feel. Yeah,
1: definitely. And, and the sound, obviously, back then, there was still such a difference between, you know, like a, 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 an original Moog, Minimoog, and at the time was Steinberg's Model E, which is the first, you know, first emulation of a Minimoog. But even today, where there is less of a difference, if you want, sound-wise, between a software emulation and hardware, half of it because software has become so advanced, and half of it because new hardware doesn't sound like the old one. So no matter if it's good or not, it just doesn't have the same character as old machinery. The tactile feedback is still essential. You know, I think that uh, being able to touch something and getting away from the screen will lead you to think differently and approach music differently. And on top of it, I kind of take it further because I feel I have a better connection with older machines. Because I feel like they're my age, you know, like the same age bracket, so a lot of the things you don't need to talk about, you can just get <laughs> down to business. And, and there's always, you know, like me, like there's always something that doesn't work, you know, like my <laughs> legger, you know what I mean? Like there's always something that, when you turn 40, the body starts to, you know, to say its thing and go, actually, you can't do that anymore, you know what I mean? And the machines are the same, you know, they're, I have instruments that have their quirks, but make them special, you know?
0: The Buchla has been a really big instrument for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, how early did you get your hands on one?
1: It, it was fairly late, I would think, because um, it was uh, when I was teaching synthesis is when I first discovered the Buchla. So I would think it was around 2003 i've heard of it but i've never seen one and i think uh, the first photos were from this book on vintage synthesizers by mark vale and i remember seeing the photos and uh, uh it just looked like a toy you know it literally looked like a like something that invited you to play it as opposed to uh, not that there's anything bad with it but more like a like a, like emu or or um, or moog modulars where it looked more like a lab set up you know a scientific experiment uh the Buchla looked like a like a toy blue knobs red here and there and weird keyboards made of copper and, but the first one that i actually got a chance to play was during uh the first nine inch nails video shoot in 2005 and we rented one for a video shoot and the video shoot was over the course of two days actually we lent it somebody lent it to us so i didn't want to leave it at the video shoot location so i brought it home with me and I'm like, you know, what, what the hell, let me set it up and play it with a little bit. And uh, I didn't go to bed, recorded all night with it. And it was a religious experience. And that was a Booklet 200D, which was what Dawn came back with, you know, in 2004. It was like the rebirth of the old modular. And then from there on, I think I bought my first one in 2007 directly from Dawn. And uh, that was the beginning, you know, of the end in a way. And then I started looking for vintage machines and ended up finding my, uh, my bigger system in Mexico City, and then throughout the years, you know, I was able to—I was lucky enough to be able to get in um, to find an original Easel music Easel, uh, which actually happens to be the prototype, the first one that Don built, and then other systems and, and modules throughout the years. But yeah, I would think it's probably my main instrument, as in uh, the one that I'm more attached to because it's been linked to so many phases of my my musical journey, both as a Music lover and, and um, as a creator of music and, and uh, as a collector too because you know there are machines that, uh, that not many have been made and they require a lot of love and uh, I think a part of it you know is, is the fact that I really like the idea of 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 these machines some of them like the Buchla 400 or 700 not really having that much of an output out there musically speaking so every time I turn them on and try sometimes unsuccessfully to make music with them. I feel like you know exploring a territory, uncharted territories because it's there's not a lot of sound that, that was documented from these instruments, and uh, I, I don't know why, but maybe because I'm just weird, That makes me very you know excited about doing it. And uh, but yeah, it's you know, borderline collecting, you know, you know <laughs> sure. which I'm, I'm I'm fine with. I mean, I have no problem with. But uh, sometimes these machines are so finicky that uh, I'm really thinking, I can't believe I just bought that, you know but generally speaking like the modular stuff is much more stable than the later machines.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, it's an interesting machine for you, I think. You've spoken before about the importance of melody mm-hmm. in your music and about kind of having this background sort of in rock music, both mm-hmm. what you grew up listening to and then playing tar. Mm-hmm. This is a synthesizer that is not meant to make music that straightforward right yeah um you know this is a from the west coast school of synthesis this Mm -hmm. is some really experimental stuff and yet you get it's maybe a bad word but pretty listenable sounds out of it i mean
1: yeah it it was interesting because when i bought the first one i was kind of scared of of having spent you know 15 grand on a reactor in a box you know like react not that there's anything bad with reactor because it's it's the way that i started making (laughs) but this is basically the hardware
0: reactor yeah yeah exactly
1: you know i felt like oh maybe i bought something with you know with an interface but something that I had already which in theory you know if you look at the components you could say you could rebuild it in reactor yeah and reactor out of a lot of them is probably one of the best sounding software from the from the day it was born basically as a generator I think what I found out is as you said very well the fact that it's a West Coast instrument you know so less based on a keyboard playing background as the Moog was in the East Coast I think it was an advantage for me because I had no background whatsoever on playing keyboards so when it came to an instrument that uh, the main advantage it had to call me in was the fact that it looked specifically crazy and wanted, and I felt like I wanted to put my hands on it. That's all really needed because it didn't ask me for knowing how to play a normal musical keyboard in order to be expressive. It was more about using my hands and my fingers on it, you know what I mean? So. I think then it's really up to the operator if the operator tends to go for a melodic path then the mach- he'll find a way you know f- uh, you'll find a way to do what you want to do and actually not really want to because I would say that hardly ever I would know what one, what I what my output is going to be on a machine I kind of like that I sit in front of it like a child would and then see what comes out you know and then it might be one project another project or it might be just an afternoon of relaxing therapeutically by just making sound you know and uh, in any case i tend to record it because you never nev- never know what'll come out but with the boukla um it was fairly easy to be melodic i mean there's plenty of stuff that wasn't melodic that i recorded but generally speaking i felt it was an in- instrument that lent itself to melody Pretty easily. Mm. Although, you know, definitely the things that pulled me in at the beginning were the weird sounds, you know, that I heard from it, and like the stuff, some of like selected things from Subotnik, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you also
0: find that it's a surprisingly organic sounding instrument?
1: Definitely. it's It definitely has to do with the components, you know. One of the main components uh, that is common to different modules in the booklet world is the low pass gates. Sorry, well, the Vactral is the component, which is part of the low-pass gates. which basically, it's a, instead of being a very fast circuit, is a circuit that uh, it's based on an LED and a sensor. So, as soon as the LED turns off, the sensor stops the connection, but it's, never, it's as quick as the light is, so it's never going to be as quick as a dedicated circuit. So, even if you switch off the light very quickly, there's going to be a, a curve, and that curve is a very natural curve if you assign it to envelopes for volume you know or gates or whatever you want to call them so even a very very quick envelope or a very quick gate will turn into something very you know percussive like you hitting a um a conga or something that has a certain you know quick but but uh, but obvious decay you know So it lends itself to very organic sounds as an instrument. And um, it always gave me the idea of being, you know, uh, something organic from another planet sound, but not the same way to say the BBC Radiophonic Workshop idea of something from another planet, which is more like the typical UFO kind of sound, nothing bad with it, but like what you you would think of. More of a a alternate reality sort of sounds. You know, like it could be something, you know, a sound that, you know, the wind through the forest might make in a parallel dimension, which is kind of, kind of what happens here, but not exactly the same. Like the, the TV series, The Fringe, you know, certain things changing. And the booklet like, kind of gave me the idea of being that, you know, a lot of the times I would sit making music in the middle of the night or the day, and um, things would come out, I was like, well, this sounds like, it could be an animal, but not in a funny synthesized way. Like it could be a weird creature, you know, that uh, that we don't have, or maybe we have somewhere else. You know what I mean? It's always been an instrument that gave me joy just to sit in front of, you know. And also a lot of sadness when it breaks, but, you know.
0: <laughs> the Buchla was definitely a revolutionary instrument when it came out and it mm-hmm. sort of remained a revolutionary instrument kind of all the way up until today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like the real sort of revolution in synthesis now is with these these Eurorack mm-hmm. modular systems. And this is something that's really happened kind of over the course of the whole time that you've been really into synthesizers. Yeah. Are you involved at all in the Eurorack world? Is that quite interesting to you?
1: I'm involved with a few companies, mostly with the people that became friends throughout the year and uh, whose uh, personality reflected in their instruments in a way that I feel like is meaningful. I started you know, with, with Eurorack. Uh, I remember it was an analog systems, RS-10 and RS-15 racks. That was my first physical, and I recorded tons of stuff. And then I had a beautiful system built by Livewire and Plan B uh, when I was on tour with Nine Inch Nails, which I still have. But generally speaking, I still have Eurorack systems, but they are uh, manufacturer dependent. For example, I have a Harvestman system and it's just Harvestman modules. I have a Make Noise system and it's just Make Noise. And then I have a Verbose electronic system and it's just Verbose modules. Because I feel like overall, I'm not really into, into Eurorack. I don't like the idea of, of uh, mix and match it feels like an endless pit and almost everything I hear coming from your rack sounds the same. And I know I sound like an old person, but I'm somebody who really centers on a specific thing and and tries to zone out on one thing with small changes. I like that. Now we're at a point where there's a lot of modules that you could plug one module straight into the output and the sound is as rich as somebody already spending 20 hours trying to come up with something cool. And to me it's the equivalent of uh, calling yourself a cook by buying something and put it in the microwave you know you're not cooking you're just rehashing somebody else's idea of a meal mm-hmm. this is a it's a pretty harsh uh, <laughs> uh, opinion but it's an opinion that gets reinforced every day when i hear something you know there's not there's there's few cases where i hear musicians that do euro wor- work work that, that i feel it, it transcends the instrument that they're using. You know, I'm thinking, Gat Gangress is one of them back in LA, and it's just, it's always a pleasure to hear his patches. I'm not thinking about what he's using when I hear that. Or actually, James Saya the other night here at the, at the festival, he did a patch, you know, with fairly big configuration of modules, but it was a very simple and to the point patch that made sense and and uh, i mean there's others you know that i know like on the opposite spectrum there's richard Mm -hmm. divine which is a good friend of mine but you know richie could be a modular it could be anything else it'll sound like richie because he has a very a unique way of making music so you know he transcends the instrument that he uses but in general i think it's much easier for people to think that they can come up with good stuff just because you can turn it on (laughs) and i think there should be you can't say oh to me it's good anyway no i mean it's not
0: well, it kind of sounds um, in a way like what you're saying is people could be doing more with less.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, I think the, the, the format itself lends itself to the opposite. I think that it's very easy for it to turn into an addiction where like, I need a new module, $200. I'll buy a new oscillator that came out this week. And then the one that was new next week, last week, no one cares about anymore. And it's more of a hobby. And I'm, I'm conscious that 90% of the user base is hobbyists. And in order for them to stay alive, need to do that. But also we're in an age where all that stuff goes on YouTube, you know. And like when I started playing guitar or doing stuff, I would never thought I just bought a guitar. Fuck, let me film myself and put it online for people to see. (laughs) It's the same exact thing, you know. I think I think just like with every instrument, it's a very personal thing. I like to be in a room with an instrument, see, kind of learn, you know, the language between me and the instrument to see what comes out, as opposed to oh, this is what I, you know, what I came up with. Let me just record everything. Yeah. And. uh, but, you know, I'm also a grump, grumpy old man, so i have, and Italian, so I have to find something to complain about. But overall, I think the Eurorack craze, I think it's a good thing. I don't think it's going to last forever. I think it's good. I'd rather have it than not have it, mostly because I'm able to not take part of it and concentrate on instruments as opposed to a collection of, of modules, you know what I mean? And I, I've done that, you know... I kind of almost steered away from all that especially with the sono record and kind of find my a, a new home and with an mc202 which is quote unquote new but to me it was a new instrument and uh and i was surprised to be able to be creative with something that you know it's a 200 well not anymore but like a 300 hundred dollar little box of plastic you know what i mean
0: mm-hmm. just kind of pulling back a bit mm-hmm. uh wanted to talk to you a little bit about nine inch nails mm-hmm. tell me i mean how did you how did you get the audition how did you wind up joining the
1: band The audition was, I saw a flyer, basically. The audition happened because I saw a flyer for Nine Inch Nails looking for a keyboard player and a guitar player. And I ended up um, going for both, really, because I was already kind of, I had a little Nord modular keyboard, and so I came up with all my little sounds, and I remember going to play Closer, where I did all the different patches, and then uh, Wish, I did guitar, and synths at the same time and um, it went well enough for them to call me back and do another one and then after that well enough for them to invite me to the studio where they were mixing With Teeth which was at the village in Los Angeles to hang out with me for a day to see quote-unquote how much it would suck to be together for a year <laughs> end quote actually <laughs> and it was funny and uh, yeah that's how I got the gig and then from there my life really changed from a professional point of view, because I had to sort of deal with a lot of things that I never had to deal with before. When it comes to, first of all, play keyboards, <laughs> and then just in a professional way to prepare an environment that not only is stable from a rehearsals point of view, but also to play live every night. You know, having been mostly doing that stuff in the studio, that was a challenge. But the best years of my life, really. I mean, it was a there were very formative years. Every aspect you know as a human being as a as a performer, as a music maker, as a lover of instruments and and then i I took a break in two thousand and eight because I kind of t- touring got the best of me in the sense that I really did not know what to do next and i i didn't feel like I was really a part of that band much All, everybody left or everybody was let go or left from when I joined and it, it just didn 't feel like I, I didn't feel part of it and i i I, I felt like in order to to find out what was next, I had to not be in it, you know what I mean, and sometimes it happens, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, you should just be, keep you should keep your job until you figure out what's next, but sometimes in order to figure out what's next, you have to not have anything, you know, mm-hmm. and it eventually led to, throughout the years, f- to reconnect again with Trent, and then we started working again on uh, How to Destroy Angels, and then touring for How to Destroy Angels, and then Nine Inch Nails for the last, you know, from 2013 and 14.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Trent Reznor seems like Kind of a musical kindred spirit in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, as somebody who has a real commitment to the studio, mm-hmm. is very, very interested in gear, a little bit of a grumpy old man, as as you say. I mean, did you learn a lot from him?
1: I didn't learn to be grumpy. I had plenty of training for that, <laughs> but uh, maybe a different nuances of that. But yeah, I learned a lot from him. I mean, if one thing that I learned from him, I would say, it's probably. I mean, Trent is inc- incredibly constructive and good at. Multitasking, and it's something that I know I'm not. So, if I learned is to give up on trying to to be as productive as he is, and just try to do the things that I'm good at, without thinking that oh, but you know, he's able to do this and do that, I should be. That said, there's still stuff that you know, and I'm, I'm able to look at things now in a different way, just because of the virtue of being able to work with him. And uh, he's been always very supportive of my path in a way. Both with nine-inch nails and without. It always—I mean, with nine-inch nails, you know, a lot of people think that he, he might be a dictator when it comes to nine-inch nails because nine-inch nails is his thing. But uh, it's his thing because he has a vision, and as long as—I mean, I feel like I was made part of that vision, you know, without being asked in a way. In a sense, that once he saw that my my uh, my contribution was in function of his art, as opposed to hey, I'm here, let me do my thing, let me show you what I can do. I found myself in the middle of it in a very creative environment, working with him in the studio on the ghost stuff, and it felt very natural. It never felt like I was guided or, or told what to do. Yeah, there's always a collaboration, you know, an exchange of ideas, or, or, or he might have a, more of a direction of where he wants a piece to go, and it's totally fine because I like to be guided anyway. But overall, of all the experiences, and not that I've been in many, but in, of, of several experiences I've been in, Probably the one that I was given more of a chance to be myself in function of what the project was and uh, Yeah, you know, I don't I wouldn't call him grumpy. It's not like too much of a grumpy. It's just uh, the fact that uh, Maybe he doesn't talk as much as people would want him to but fuck if you look at you know the musical output I mean, I think he talked enough
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, there's plenty of maybe. stuff. There's You know,
1: I mean a lot of people have gotten the message that they wanted from him anyway, so
0: sure taking some time off from the group seemed like it really gave you the chance and the space to get going on your own music. Mm-hmm. 2010, the Sono Io project uh, really got going. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, Sono Io was born, I used to have a band before then called Mod Wheel Mood, which was my attempt to sort of make songs. I mean, not an attempt to make songs, it was more of a band. And then I, you know, I would write most of the stuff with Pelle, the guitar player. Uh, but as far as uh, driving force, I was on my own. So Sonoye kind of became, you know, it means it's me. And, and it was kind of like me doing stuff on my own, songs written on the Buchla 200. And it was a fun process. I've learned uh, a little bit from my experience with Trent and then from uh, using the platform Top Spin, how to release music direct to fan. It was a great experience. And I did two records. I did a tour with Lady Tron, which was amazing. But uh, the drawback being that uh, I was doing everything on my own. So by the time that I was done with the second record, I kind of knew what to do for the third record and the the factor of having fun kind of went out of the window or it just felt like a job now. It's like, I know how much I'm going to make, I know what I need to do. And I I can't listen to a new idea without thinking what song is going to be. And that kind of led me to not work on a new record, basically. And I started taking instruments outside of the studio where I have my stereo just sitting down on the floor and kind of make instrumental music. And that led me to a lot of the stuff that came out after the Sono Io stuff, like the Forse series on important records.
0: It's very obvious listening to it that there was definitely a shift after Sono Io Mm -hmm. um, into the Forse stuff. Uh, Sono Io was primarily song-based. Forse and the Hospital Productions records have been quite a bit farther out Mm -hmm. and really getting away from songs. Yeah.
1: There's a third Sono Io record in the works that's been in the works for a while. I just don't. I actually was listening to some of the mixes walking around Berlin to see, it's like, am I going to ever finish this? And every time I listen, I get excited. But I also get very overwhelmed and anxious about the process of putting stuff out and and, and the requirements of putting music, song-based stuff out and the promotion involved with it and playing shows. And I don't want to do any of it. I just want the music to be out and move on to the next release. When I do instrumental stuff, I can work on four or five albums a year. And uh, put them out, and people won't be complaining. I don't have to be touring a record forever. I mean, I can just do it and do a, move to another one. It's still me, you know. When you do an album of songs, it's a little different, you know. They expect you're expected to to follow a specific path, you know, in order to promote her and whatnot. And I just don't feel like song-based music fits my my expression, rhythm at this time. Even because, from a listener's point of view, I feel like. When I listen to instrumental music, yes, I get a vibe, I can get a mood of maybe something that is happy or, or sad, whatever, blue. But the blue, it could be a different shade of blue depending on what year I'm listening to that track. Now, if you listen to a song, the lyrics, you know, if a song speaks about, you know, the color red, and you're singing me a song that you wrote that talks about the color red, you're probably going to be talking about, I don't know, this chair that is red, or you're going to give me a pretty clear image of what red you're talking about. If I listen to an instrumental track that is called Red, but there's no description, then in my mind I will make up that Red however I want. And I might be thinking about, I don't know, a little skateboard that I had at a kid, when I was a kid, you know, that was Red. That would be the first thing that come to mind. And anything that is associated with any feeling of that skateboard or... So it's a much more personal journey that might change next time, I don't know, five years from now when I listen to that record. I might have, you know, memories of the first Red thing that I thought about but maybe now red means something else because I don't know I had an accident and all of a sudden everything was red you know you know it's kind of like going to the museum between instrumental music and songs I see it that way if you go to the museum and there's a guide that shows you and talks about every piece of art that is there yes you get a pretty defined description of every piece of art that would be a song in a way. There's still a personal absorption of what the piece is from a personal point of view. So a song that might make me super excited might remind you of a breakup or, you know what I mean? It might be a different response, but it'll be linked to that specific experience. With instrumental stuff, it's like wandering into a museum on your own, you know. The museum is about something, a specific artist, but you make your own idea. You'll make your own, you'll develop your own feelings, you know. It's a little bit more personal and I think it lasts a little longer. It's like a it's like a bucket, but it's a bucket that you can fill with whatever you want, as opposed to, you know, filled up halfway with already something that you, you'll have to ha- keep in there forever, you know?
0: Is that reflected in how you're making music these days, how you're, how you're writing music these days? Um, are you kind of trying to create a space in your songs for people to kind of fill in with sort of their own personal experiences? Are, are you putting a lot of yourself into those compositions?
1: Well, I mean, for the instrumental point of view, I don't, I mean, and, and I say this with the with utmost respect for everybody that listens to the music that I make, but I never really think about who's going to listen to it when I make it. I was lucky enough to reach a point where when I sit down and make music, it's mostly for myself, for almost like a therapeutic way, where I just feel good making it. And uh, I was lucky to have people around me that push me to put it out because they thought that it was good enough or good for people. To, they wanted other people to listen to it. And obviously I was lucky because people liked it but overall it comes from me sitting down and making something that makes me feel good and if that happens then I always feel there's gonna be one or two people at least that might like it too but it's not essential you know because I tend to make so much music that it makes me happy I realized early either on my own skin or other friends skin that tried to make music that would somehow put them on the map or make make other people understand what they did, that never worked out or hardly ever works out. And in the end, not only you end up with a product that uh, it's not exactly what you wanted to do, but you didn't even achieve what you wanted with it. So I kind of learned that step one should be whatever you put out should be What you want to put out it should be what you like what makes you happy and if it takes forever to find out what's you happy so be it but if it takes you two weeks to release an instrumental record then so be it there's no you know there's no rule the only rule should be it should make you happy and i'm lucky enough where the i reached and for now maybe i'll step out of it but where the process has been very very exciting and therapeutic for me. The only drawback is that usually generally requires a new piece of instrument every time. In other words, you know, like for the Sono and Risveglio and the Forza stuff, I tend to exploit the instrument to a point where I record a lot and I'm super stoked about the stuff that I record and I feel great but then I just move to another instrument for a while. Um, I go back to them but usually not as productive. It's kind of like falling in love with a person, you know, it's like you stay like the the first few months are crazy, and then it kind of stabilizes and it becomes something else. It's a more stable you know the honeymoon is kind of over. I mean there's nothing bad. It's just the next step of a relationship. And that happens with every instrument that I own, which you know that that I was able to get out uh, some a recording series, if you want. and
0: do you find that even happens with the with the Buchla, or is that more of a constant?
1: No, I mean, yeah, it happens well, with the boucla, yeah, I think it happens with everything, with every instrument. There's a point where you just need something else. I think it's you know I I say this often. I feel like it's me as a child just trying to be the same you know approach life and the same music in the same way. I, I realized that I, when I was a kid, what made me excited about making music was the fact that I did not know what the machine was going to be doing at the time it was a Walkman or a boombox that I would record songs for my grandparents to listen to driving back home. They would come every week and I'd spend an hour just recording a you know song on a cassette when I was like six or seven years old, and then give it to them to listen on the way back. And then you realize, oh, wow, if I hold down the play and the record button halfway, whatever I record gets recorded you know, twice the speed. And at the time it would be something like farts and burps or stuff like that, or like, you know, very low voice or whatever. But, you know, it's stuff like that that kept me going into the creative side of things of not knowing why certain things were happening. And synthesizer can, synthesizers still do that to me, you know, and that's why, but I usually try to look for a new one that I haven't exploited already and then do certain things. Then sometimes I keep them, sometimes I sell them after six, actually always sell them after six months if I don't use them, unless it's the the bukla, obviously. But, but yeah, I think it, it applies to everything. Who knows if I'll reach a point where I'll stop, you know, looking for ideas and in new instruments, but... I think there's much worse to be worried about in the world than, you know, finding something that allows you to keep on having a voice, you know, and being, feeling creative. But yeah, generally speaking, I have to say, if there's one instrument that I still go to every day and somehow even turning it on, just the the, the, the basic sounds make me, feel, make me feel good without having to interact with it too much, I would think it's uh, the EMS, you know, either the VCS3 or the Synthi, which are, you know, instruments that i got into later on probably in the last few years but some of the most organic and alive instruments that i've ever had the chance to play with and there's two records actually that I, one record has been finished that i just done on a ems synthy that i'm very excited to get out next year and then another one is a collaboration with mersbo which we did you know with synthies which was a lot of fun <laughs>
0: nice you've put out three records i think in the last two years there was the Third record in the Force series, mm-hmm. there was Sono and uh, Rusveglio That's quite a lot of records for two years. Yeah, I think
1: Force the two catalog is still probably 2014. So it's, and and then the two twelves, you know, there's a Slumberman release and the Scarn release. So. Yeah.
0: Well, this begs the question. I mean, how much time are you spending in the studio these days?
1: Well, there's not really a, a, a definition for studio for me anymore. In fact, if you really think about it, I mean, Sono and Rusveglio were recorded on tour, so there wasn't a studio environment. And to be honest, I'm more creative when I'm outside the studio, at least when it comes to the spark of making music. The studio, while I love it, obviously, because it's, you know, it's, it's my little safe haven. I do feel that when you, when you walk in, there's a certain responsibility to make, to do something, <laughs> you know. And that's why, you know, the whole process of making instrumental music started with bringing the stuff outside the studio. You know, whether it was uh, in my living room where I had my little hi-fi system, you know, on the floor making music with a four-track, or on tour with, you know, in the hotel rooms with a little boombox or whatever it was. So I'm making music pretty much all the time. You know, I I, I mean, not l- literally everywhere, but I tend to have a piece of gear wherever I go. I'm, I'm a big fan of portable devices with speakers, you know, and with batteries, you know, like the new OP-1 or the Korg, Volca series, and I feel they're very, they lend themselves to be able to do that stuff everywhere, you know, like if you, especially if you're traveling, you know, like on a window of a plane and being able to sort of zone out and come up with a sequence or something that puts you in a specific space. But I've been doing stuff a lot in the studio too, like collaborating with other people and, and uh, doing stuff more in the proper way. But yeah, I mean, I make music as, for, for a living, so the answer would be pretty much all the time, you know, whether I'm working on a project because I do, like, you know, I have a a job as you know, doing music for advertising and do a lot of that too. So that tends me to work with instruments in a way that I wouldn't if I'd be left to my own devices. So then I, maybe I use some of my sense in a creative way that I didn't think of, and then once I'm done with a gig, I go back and use it that way. And I was like, oh wow, you know. But yeah, pretty much, unfortunately, all the time. And then when I do that, when I don't do that, now I got back into shredding. So I've been practicing my scales and whatnot. So if it's not since, I I always, you know, that's my hobby now is getting back into practicing technique, which is fun.
0: <laughs> do you think there's any chance there will be an Alessandro Cortini guitar record?
1: Well, I don't know if there'll be a record, but... I've asked already some friends, like, hey, do you want me to shred on your record? <laughs> nice. Just for fun. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think so. I mean, a lot of the Sonoyo stuff that has been finished, I waited a long time because I thought it was going to be just since as I've done it before and then ended up adding some guitars. And it's like, oh, wow, this is the missing part. And I started doing guitar work and writing guitar songs again. But I don't know. I, I tend to... I realized that if there's one thing that slowed me down before was the fact of thinking that I had to stick to specific rules and while I don't feel like I should go all the way the opposite way so just anything goes now I approach everything in a more passive way passive not in in a don't care but like I like to go with the flow if for now I feel like in my spare time I have to you know practice guitar or just do things that I was doing when I was 14 year old so be it if I feel good about it no one is here to tell me I can't do what I want to do you know and even if they are fuck them you know I, mean, I don't I don't care you know I mean I can I'll still be you know doing it tomorrow but at the same time I feel like um, it can get overwhelming you know because there's so many options with, with the ways that the ways that I can go so I try to take it day by day and uh, that's why it's always a problem to see what say what's next or you know or when they ask me deep questions about how the Sono record came out, if there's any meaning. It's like, well, the meaning is, you know, there's just a record I made on tour to fall asleep or just to relax from a hotel room to another hotel room. There's no, you know, like, uh, I'm very happy if people can get more out of it, but there was no, you know, uh, intention for, for it to be anything more than a relaxing record. Hmm.
0: It strikes me that the mode that you like to work in is not necessarily in the live space, it's really in the in the space where you're creating. Mm-hmm. If, if not in a traditional studio, then you're making music wherever you can, yeah. but there's such an emphasis in the music world these days because of things that have happened in the record industry mm-hmm. on live performance and on touring especially do you think that makes it hard to be the kind of artist that that you are do you think that's becoming a more and more difficult model how do you how do you deal with that
1: well i have to say that the instrumental you know since i started making instrumental music things have been much more natural and easy i mean i don't know if you want to call it easy because it's been a, a while since i you know i have to do other things in order to to be able to do this but um if I'd have to compare the, the song-based business to the instrumental business, when I was trying to concentrate on song-based stuff, it was a lot about me, 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 kind of, you know, finish a record, hire a PR guy, or try to get your album reviewed here and there, and try to find a tour to go on, you know, to play shows on. And with the instrumental stuff, it was so organic, from friends that liked it, and then talked to somebody else, and then recommend a booking agent, which was busy. And then, you know, a month later, He's a friend with another booking agent who actually is interesting, interested in representing you. And it was a very organic thing that I didn't really have to hustle. And I don't think I didn't have to hustle because because of who I am. I think I didn't have to hustle because things lined up at the right time. And, and I think people liked the music, people liked me. I liked them, we became friends. I mean, uh, another example is Masa from Mount Analog, a store in Los Angeles. Uh, Masa was extremely helpful as a direction, you know, give me a direction of people to talk to and introduce, she's a matchmaker, you know, she's just very good at, you know, uh, introducing people that are like-minded. And, you know, she helped a lot with that. We put me in touch with Surefire, book, or books me here and in the U.S. and. Uh, and with Dominic, you know, and actually Dominic from, import, from a hospital or Vatican Shadow I met through West from Cold Cave when they moved to the West Coast. And so it was all very organic, you know, there was no, oh, we should do stuff together. There was never the LA thing. It was like, oh, what are you up to? Oh, we should work on it together. I hate that. You know, when people just, you meet them and then, oh, we should collaborate. It's like, no, we shouldn't. We're talking. <laughs> if it'll happen, it'll happen. There's no, you know it's just such a weird thing it's like you know it's almost like being in the club but like oh yeah cool you're cool and we should just do the most personal thing that you do on your own together tomorrow no it doesn't work that way you know what i mean but i was very lucky it just happened and from there i was playing very nice shows with you know like-minded people and uh, i think for it to become a you know a sustainable source of income i'd have to do it more often you know i'd have to tour more often and it's not something i'm ready to do because I think, um, I mean, while I want to play more shows, I could never do this every day. I think it's it's still the touring thing. Although the live instrumental music lends itself more to, to a f- expressive freedom on a show basis, it's still something that you have to do every night. And and uh, I think it would slowly shave off the layer of of, of beauty that that I associate with it. And. Um, it will eventually get into a circle, you know, a cycle of having to play the same stuff every night to a certain extent. Who knows? Maybe it won't. But uh, so far, I think I'm lucky because it's a great balance between able, being able to do other projects, other things, and also nurture this side of my career, which I've been extremely lucky to be given. And uh, so I'm, I'm just very excited to see how it goes. But the, on the other hand, I have to say I see bands. I've heard the friends that are out on tour, you know, on, on, on bands. Where, you know, I asked, what oh, how are they doing? Oh, they're doing great. They're just, you know, on tour and, you know, the opening for this band and that band. I'm like, oh, cool. So they're, are they making a living? No, they're barely breaking even. It's like, what the fuck? How is that good? You know, it just makes me think, well, that's the whole situation is fucked because you would think that if it's good, it means you're out and you're able to make a living doing that, not struggle, you know, to make it. So I don't know I don't know I, maybe I'm just too old to be able to do that, like I could never go on the van again you know and 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 just go and show people that my music is great I mean i don't there's plenty of other ways that I can make music without having to suffer <laughs> uh you know and and do it for myself and plenty of ways luckily that I can not plenty, but I can always find a way to pay the rent with. The things that I know how to do, you know, whether it's working on somebody else's record or remixes or production or ad work or, you know, there's always something that I can find uh, a way to be productive in without feeling like I'm selling out, you know what I mean?
0: Well, and it sounds like from a a creative standpoint, this kind of world of instrumental music that, that you've wound up in. It it really sounds like it's it's your place. Like you've sort of found...
1: Yeah, I've been... It, it's been almost like... In an Italian way, I felt guilty because it happened with almost... I would say effortlessly because... It's not really effortlessly, but when you when you enjoy doing something, from an Italian point of view, I think, oh, I can't be good because I didn't suffer at all making it, mm-hmm. you know? And then you realize that's bullshit, you know, that it's not written anywhere that... Uh, Like, if I have an idea and I write it down and record it, that that take is not going to be the take that I release. It's not written anywhere. If that take makes you feel good when you listen to it, so fuck, that's the take. There's no need for it to be, oh, that's just a sketch. Let me rework it in this. Let me strip away everything that sounded, you know, uh, inspirational and immediate and volatile in that take and... You know, and just replace it with a little bit more mathematical approach. That said, it took it took a while for me to get to that stage where where I felt like I could do everything live, uh, because you really don't know if it's going to be good enough. And then, but then when you realize that the first take could be the one that becomes the record, then there's also a confidence in that because then you know it's like, yeah, it's going to be fine. No one's going to die. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm. I realize I'm having an issue making stuff that is more complicated. I tend to be on one instrument it's exploiting it to the extent that I can as one take, I hardly ever do yeah, none of the Forster records or, or the Risveglio or Sono records had any overdubs, not really by choice but I think that the way that the tracks sound uh, have plenty of content in their repetitivity and, and uh, harmonic content to have enough of a statement without having to you know add a second voice or something, you know
0: is that something that you could see maybe being a new creative step, kind of thinking about compositions a little bit more in that way, adding more elements down the line, kind of getting away from the first, the first yeah, take I mentality? Yeah, I don't
1: know. I, I mean, I don't exclude it. I, I always felt, that, felt it was a little overwhelming. Like, you know, in the studio, I have a studio where there's uh, plenty of gear. And, 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 but even then, unless I'm working on a project or somebody else, like I did some recordings with Chris Liebing recently, and uh, uh, he was... In my studio, we try to use a little bit of everything, you know, like, you know, something for the drum machine. We use a lot of electron stuff, and then a lot of my modular stuff for sequences and whatnot. And, uh, but generally speaking, I tend to concentrate on one instrument simply because I feel like uh, you get more of a one voice sort of situation it might be a modular that it's not used to doing drums all of a sudden you do drums with it and you come up with drums that are very unique because it's not an instrument that is famous for drums or same thing for an instrument that is usually famous for bass or you know and you use it for something else like in a good example is the 303 you know 303 is an instrument that generally speaking is associated with with acid which is great but then you hear somebody like varg you know jonas from northern electronics with his misantropen record the first one and you go holy fuck, you know, he basically took what made Plastic Man great at the beginning and stretched it even longer, putting it in a fucking forest, and it all of a sudden sounds like a call of an animal like you're somewhere in Sweden, it's winter and there's this carpet, you know, of synths and then a call from afar and it's a 303 and it sounds like a weird, you know stretched, you know you know, it's another instrument all of a sudden